Hi, I'm Dr. Mark Donoghue. Join us for our new podcast series, FX Omics. We'll be exploring the new technologies of integrative medicine, including genomics, metabolomics, the microbiome, and many more fields that are transforming healthcare. We're focusing on how they apply to practitioners and how we can incorporate them into our patient care. We aim to make these exciting and sometimes challenging fields relevant to you and your practice. Search for FX Omics on your favourite podcast platform and we look forward to your company. Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today from Western Australia is Dr. Adrian Lepresti, who's a clinical psychologist in private practice and senior researcher at Murdoch University, Western Australia. He's over 20 years of clinical experience working with children and adults suffering from a range of mental health conditions. Dr. Lepresti has experience in a range of psychological therapies and has received extensive training in nutritional and lifestyle treatments for mental health disorders. He regularly publishes in peer-reviewed and high-impact journals on the effects of diet, nutraceuticals, sleep and exercise for the treatment and prevention of depression, anxiety, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, that's ADHD, and bipolar disorder. He's completed several clinical trials investigating the effects of curcumin, saffron and ashwagandha for the treatment of anxiety and depression in children and adults and indeed has recently published this year 2018 a paper using saffron. Dr Lepresti is also the founder of Personalised Integrative Therapy and regularly conducts workshops both nationally and internationally. Now when we last had Adrian on FX Medicine we spoke about his integrative approach to mental health Today we're going deeper into teenage depression and mood disorders. You know, I guess this is the question, have you got five hours? It's a massive topic, Adrian, so welcome back to FX Medicine. How are you? I'm great, thanks for having me back. Now, as I said, this is a huge issue. We're seeing more and more of it in our community. Indeed, more and more research, um, resources are being thrown at it because it's such a huge issue. How big or how common is this issue, especially in youth? Yeah, it's actually uh, yeah, quite a big problem. You know, there's, it's estimated that about 10 to 20 percent of children and adolescents experience a, a mental health disorder during their, their youth, uh, which is probably right. even a, even an underestimate. But um, and it's particularly concerning because if you if you suffer from anxiety or depression as a youth, you're at greater risk of also then uh, suffering from from the similar disorders as an adult mm. too. And uh, and obviously, the longer that you suffer from the condition, the harder it is to treat. We're seeing huge issues with self-esteem, bullying, social media, peer group issues, you know, all of this sort of issues regarding or having an effect on our affect. How important is this in the profiling? Is that the right word? The diagnosis in assessment of teenagers? Yeah, I mean, if we... Early interventions are key. So if we can identify um, youth at risk, um, and obviously the earlier we identify, then the greater we have of either preventing it progressing into a, a full-blown disorder 
and uh, the greater likelihood we have of uh, of having a successful treatment outcome. So it's really important for us to be able to identify some of the risk factors associated with um, mental health problems in youth and then, and then treat accordingly. And of course, we as adults rattle off these things about, you know, assessment. And then you have a teenager sitting in front of you that's, you know, looking rather closed and withdrawn and not really wanting your company. Um, how do you get through to teenagers? How do you get them to open up? Yeah. It is difficult. For, for some teenagers, it can be quite difficult. For others, they're quite happy to come in um, and have a discussion. I mean, I, I think the issue with, with teenagers coming in for an assessment is that unlike adults where generally, I'll say as a general rule, they, they've come in willingly and uh, and they're the ones that are making an appointment and so forth, with teenagers it's not necessarily the case. Mm. You know, they're brought in because of mum or dad's concerned about them and they not, may not necessarily, necessarily be a... Uh, a compliance recipient for treatment. <laughs> so it's really important for us to to develop rapport with them. And it may just take some time, uh, firstly, just to, to just get to know them first before we start getting into the nitty-gritty of what's going on for them. So yeah. uh, rapport is important for everybody, but I think it's particularly important uh, with, with teenagers in particular. Can I, out of interest, take a little step back here and sort of think about this from the parent's perspective? And the reason I ask this is it's not uncommon for parents, you know, in their grief to say, I never saw it coming, you know, when they've got a, a teenage suicide. What sort of light bulbs need to go on? What warning lights need to go off and why? What do we look for? Yeah, it's something we do need to be aware of. I mean, although uh, suicide is uncommon in, in teenagers, it's, you know, it's less than 1% of teenagers, the reality is, though, that, that it is a particularly high risk time. Um, you know, it's uh, it's actually the third leading cause of death for 15 to 24 year olds. So it's something we do need to be very uh, mindful of. Yeah. And uh, some of the warning signs include obviously talking about death, saying things like, "Oh, you know, I'd be better off dead," um, even glorifying uh, death. Um, you know, talk around that would be certainly, obviously, an alarm bells. But the other hints would even be changes in behaviours, um, withdrawing from peers spending more time on their own. Um, you know, they might be light bulb moments that you that you need to consider and think, oh, what's going on for my for my for my child? Um, uh, so the kind of that social um, separation, if, if if they were quite social before and now they're no longer doing that, that's one that I'd be be quite concerned about. Uh, if they're engaging in kind of greater at risk behaviours or riskier behaviours, uh, that can be Another sign. I mean, obviously, they're giving away treasured possessions and mm. and, uh, and they're writing songs or, or reading poetry or uh, writing letters about death. You know, they're always things that we need to to, to be mindful of. <laughs> well, uh, no wonder it's so confusing. All of those things. I was going. Yep, I did that. Yep, I did that. <laughs> yep, I did that. Songs. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, how do you pick? I mean, this must be so confusing for parents. Is yeah. there any? Um, is there any way that a parent can direct their child and say, listen, I'm worried about you? Um, you know, I know that you're probably going to close down, but I'm worried about you for this reason. You know, are you thinking of killing yourself? Have you have you ever, um, I guess, taught parents or do, is there any psycho psychologist way of approaching this for the parents to say, you need to ask a direct question or you need to ask an indirect question? How How is it supposed to be handled? Well, it really varies. It varies depending upon 
uh, the type of relationship the parent has with with their child. So for some parents where the relationship is quite open and and quite a positive relationship, then then you know certainly uh, directly asking is is not going to be a problem. Uh, for others where that relationship isn't there, then um, it may be more difficult getting information. So that's where I would kind of look at. Well, you know, are there any other family members or any other friends that can uh, and talk to your youth. Uh, so I'll try to enlist the support of other significant others who may have a better relationship with each child, with the with with the youth. Uh, so it it is very individualised uh, rather than a direct thing. But ultimately, if there's changes in behaviours um, that you know there's behaviours that are just not characteristic for their youth, uh, and also. You know, are there particular alarm um, oh, stresses going on? Has there been changes in you know, relationships? Has there been breakdown in friendships? Has there been a breakdown in you know, girlfriend-boyfriend relationship going on there? Has that changed? I mean, obviously, they're risk factors. If there's parental divorce or separation going on, that increases the risk. So it needs to be kind of coincided with, you know, are there any other stresses going on that might increase the risk of uh, of So how do you get teenagers, once you've sat down with them for an hour or so and you've you've had a little bit of an introduction, how do you get them to comply to, stick to a revisitation, adhering to their, hopefully it's a mental health care plan? Um, How do you get them to stick to that? Well, I think it's really about having that conversation with them. Um, I think one of the things that I do when I'm seeing teenagers is... Um, you know, obviously, first just trying to develop some type of rapport uh, with them, and then just talking a bit about their areas of, you know, what things are they interested in? Uh, are there particular areas uh, that they want to change in their life? Are there particular areas that they're not quite happy with? And then from there, um, talk a bit about, you know, how their mood might be impacting on their school performance, for example. Is uh, that yeah. performance is important? So just something to engage with. Is there socialisation, either are friendships important to them um, and what impact does their anxiety or, or low mood have on relationships. Uh, so I think it's, a, you know, even for some, I've got um, many who are very interested in sport and, uh, and athletic performance. And so we might kind of use that as a, I suppose, uh, a direction for us to move towards this group. We're going, okay, you've got your, your interest in sport, you're interested in academic things, your athletic ability is your, you know, are your mood problems impacting on your ability to perform in that area? Right. So it's really just trying to see what they're interested in and then trying to engage them in that particular area. And of course, the mental health care plan, I say mental health care, but it's mental health plan, correct? Is mm-hmm. that the correct terminology? Which in Australia um, is given as a six visit thing and then you can extend it. Is that right? Or a five visit thing? So it's six visits, and then you can have another four visits uh, per calendar year. So it can be extended next year. The the wily practitioner, I guess, would um, start to use some at the end of one year and some at the beginning of another. But anyway, <laughs> do you, do you if, if it works out that way? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. we can't control our minds. But anyway. <laughs> I don't know what that's like around the world. If our FX Medicine listeners would like to give us um, a bell on uh, on what's available for them in their country, in their situation, we'd love to hear about how healthcare plans vary around the world. What factors influence youth mood and behavioural problems? I've been through a couple with regards to social media, 
But what about hormones and things that we can't necessarily control? Yeah, there's lots of changes going on for, for teenagers from a from a physiological point of view, and, and that certainly can contribute to to mood problems. Um, you know, your changes in hormones, your testosterone levels, and in in boys and so forth. So I'd say that hormones uh, do certainly play a part uh, in in youth mood. Uh, I mean, the other thing too is also the environmental factors. Obviously, we've talked about kind of your your bullying and your social pressures. There's also your academic stresses, things like that, that are going on. Um, the other thing too is even uh, you've got your your what's going on in the home. What's the home environment like? Yeah. Uh, what's the parents' relationship like? So it may not necessarily got to have to do specifically with them, but it could be that their parents they they're going into a into a home environment that's not very positive, and that obviously will affect their mood. And then you've got things like the desire for independence and negotiating that independence with parents and the conflict that often occurs around that. Mm. Um, you've got, for some, for many teenagers, your poor diet, your, your, your disrespect of sleep, uh, I suppose, that often occurs too, and then your, your technology and social media use. So all those different things can affect um, their mood, and, and ultimately it's about trying to identify what specific factors are might uh, influencing the person sitting in front of us which could be very different to someone else coming in. So, And do you find that teenagers are receptive or non-receptive to assessment tools like, for instance, you know, the HAM-A, the HAM-D, the, um, the DAS, um, you know, rating scales that are freely available? Um, I often use a lot of questionnaires with, with youth, to be honest. So uh, generally, I use questionnaires if they're struggling verbalising and talking. So I might use that as a kind of a point, yeah, a discussion yeah. point. So, and I'm not so much interested in the the, the final score. I'm interested in, in in the questions, the answers that they give to a particular question. So if they say, um, and that might then be a discussion point. So let's say they say they're not, you know, their sleep is poor. Uh, they give a rating of zero, for example, indicating that it's poor. Then I might then use that to talk a bit about their sleep, what's going on with their sleep, and use that as kind of a point of discussion. Uh, so I'm more interested in the, I suppose, the, the qualitative uh, information that I get from the questionnaires rather than uh, an ultimate score yeah. uh, indicating whether it's high or low. And we talk about anxiety, depression, but things like acting out, what about aggression? A lot of teenagers will, um, and, and, and even children, will display their sadness through Aggression, and then particularly boys. So it's so it's very difficult to you know a lot of the symptoms are not similar uh, to to adults. So I think if there's a lot of aggression and that's not characteristic, if there's a lot of moodiness that's occurring, uh, then that might be a warning sign of, of of sadness and low mood going on. Yeah, and uh, and that again then requires a bit more questioning and assessment around that. And you know, indeed, there's been some nutrient implications with aggression, whether it be a, a deficiency or a, or even an overload. Do you, do you assess for these? Do you question or do you look at in, in maybe demographic factors? Like, for instance, I understand um, Perth is quite high in copper, and what was there? Was there another heavy metal that was implicated in aggression somewhere? Yeah, look, I mean, I don't necessarily uh, um, do a lot of blood, you know, organise a lot of blood assessments for, for teams. I think it's really, it can certainly be useful for, to, to do. 
But if they're not even wanting to be there, it can be very difficult for them to then see me and then I've got to refer them to go see a GP to yep. go get a blood test done. Gotcha. Uh, so, so I might then just educate. So if I can then engage them and they, and they are interested in improving their mood and they go, yep, it is impacting on my life um, I want, and it is impacting on a particular area of my life that I think is really important, then we'll talk about what factors can affect uh, mood. And I'll talk a lot about diet and, and nutrients and, and provide some education around how that affects our mood. And then we might just talk a bit about, let's say, for example, with zinc. We'll talk about some of the foods that are high in zinc and, and what foods that they're consuming um, that may be high in zinc or, or if they're not consuming that at all. And we'll, we'll kind of develop some goals around maybe just modifying that. Uh, and, but again, it needs to be realistic. I, I think that if we uh, are recommending drastic changes in diet, there's probably 1% of you. Know, in my experience, you know, 1 to 5% of you are quite happy to... Uh, to look at dramatic changes in their diet, and the rest of the 95%, uh, there's no way I can engage them with that. Mm. So we'll just look at modifying certain areas, trying to incorporate uh, extra fruits and veggies, or or they might set some goals for it, to eat a particular food that's high in zinc every couple of days, and we'll work towards that. We might supplement. Um, generally, youth are pretty good at, uh, at taking supplements, so that's often an, an easier way to them take. That's really strange. I, I would have thought they'd have a... Uh, a compliance issue with supplements? Not so, you reckon? Well, it, it all depends. I, I think a lot of a lot. Some teens can be very resistant to changing their diet, uh, and uh, and and so really, then I'm looking at well, where can we change? And and although supplements are not ideal, um, and you want to try to derive uh, a lot of the vitamins and minerals from at least the base from a, a good diet. Some some teams are just not willing to make those changes. Yeah. So it may be easier for them to take a zinc tablet or, or omega three fatty acids or things like that. Um, and it just depends. You know, some some teams are uh, open to changing their diet, but I think there's there's more resistance for a lot of them. Yeah, research on nutraceuticals and herbs, nutrients for the treatment of youth mood and behavioural problems is increasing. You've indeed been been involved for quite some time, and you've got a recently published study on saffron. Can you please take us through this? What was it useful for? What was your cohort, and and what did uh, the results tell you? Yeah, I looked at the effects of saffron for anxiety and depressive symptoms in, in teenagers. Uh, I wrote a paper several years ago looking at just reviewing some of the nutrients uh, for depression in particular for youth. And I was quite alarmed actually at the, the lack of good quality research uh, looking at nutrients with youth. And there wasn't a lot of good controlled studies. So that kind of then triggered me to really uh, want to uh, do more research looking at the effects of nutraceuticals in youth. And so I managed to um, get some funding to look at the effects of saffron. Uh, I used a patented saffron extract uh, with with youth. And it was an eight-week study where they took 14 milligrams of uh, saffron twice a day for eight weeks. Uh, so it was a double-blind placebo-controlled study. And, uh, and the kids that I recruited were teenagers not with diagnosed depression or anxiety. I wanted to look at kind of your moody use, I suppose, uh, ones who kind of um, were reporting anxiety or depressive symptoms, but not necessarily having a diagnosis. And what we found was that uh, in terms of looking at the internalizing symptoms, so the anxiety and depressive symptoms collectively, there was about a 30 
I think about 35% reduction in symptoms over the eight-week period compared to only about 17% in the placebo. So uh, so it's really quite positive that mm. the, the, the results were statistically significant and, and probably clinically meaningful too. So, uh, so just by taking saffron, we're looking at, at at least a you know a 20% improvement uh, compared to a placebo in their mood, which is really positive. Mm, really positive. And what was the cohort size? So it was uh, we, we recruited 80, and I think about 65 or so uh, finished the study. Oh, that's decent. That's very decent, but particularly for teenagers. Like that's really yeah. decent. Yeah. What we also did, we got. Um, we got the teenagers to do some questionnaires over the eight weeks, and then we also got parents to rate their uh, rate their youth too in terms of the mood. So we got the, the two perspectives, and what we found that was that the effects were greater in in the youth. So they reported um, generally better improvement compared to compared to their parents. Um, I'm not sure why that was the case. What seems to be the case is maybe. Um, the youth self-reports a more reliable um, measure of mood than the parents' reports of their youth. Um, does that make sense? And uh, and so, I don't know, we'll see. And uh, I suppose the other thing too is that if parents, if a youth is suffering from anxiety and depression, it could also be that the parents have their own mental health issues yeah. too. So yeah. for them to be able to see some of the changes in the youth might be difficult. Yeah, and may, maybe not cognizant of the actual issues presented with yeah. their, their offspring. Yeah. Wow. That's both enlightening and sad yes. <laughs> at the yes, same time. Exactly. It's, I think it says something about the stresses in our whole society. And with regard to, I, I was going to ask you earlier, with regards to the mental health plans, when you've got you know a five, maybe an added on four, Oh, sorry, six maybe added on four visits, so a, a potential maximum of 10 in a year. What's the realistic time to see uh, a real result? I mean, we're talking about things like um, self-perspective, self-esteem, self-awareness. Um, What's the realistic time to expect a result in, an, in a teenager versus what's subsidised? The research does show that most change occurs in the first few sessions. Oh, so, okay. um, and that's the case with, with adults, and I, I don't expect it to be that much different with youth. So, um, I kind of stopped complaining about the ten sessions a long time ago. Uh, the reality is that's what I've got, yeah, and that's what help. I've got to work with. <laughs> yeah. um, so, um, there's no use uh, complaining about it. So, within that. It's, you know, I know I've got ten sessions. Obviously, people can come in more, but um, but now they're going to be you know, totally out of pocket uh, for my sessions when they come and see me. But if I know that I've got ten sessions, I go, well, what can I do in those ten sessions? And there's lots that I can do, but I don't have to do it myself. Yeah. So I know that uh, social connections is really important for them. So so what about if, if as part of my work I try to connect them with a youth group? I try to um, do some work by developing, you know, getting them engaged in some type of hobbies or interests or sporting activities. Now, that's where the change is going to occur, not in my office. Yeah. So, uh, so part of my work is also about trying to change their environment. Um, I'm also teaching them if I think their sleep, sleep hygiene is poor 
Now, it doesn't take long. Uh, you know, within a week, you can change some of your sleep hygiene. The key is the motivation to change. But if we, if we know that if we can sleep an extra hour or two a night, the impact on our mood is huge. So 10 sessions is, is what I've got and 10 sessions is what I work with. I might not be able to change deep core belief systems and 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 but I don't have that 10 sessions to be able to do that. Uh, and then maybe we can do a piece of work now and a piece of work next year or the week or the year after when they're ready. So Going back to that saffron study, forgive me, yep. I, I totally forgot to ask you before, how quickly did um, subjects respond to the intervention? Yeah, we did um, every two weeks we got them to complete the questionnaires. Yep. So everybody starts getting better in the first two weeks, whether you're on placebo or not on placebo or on saffron. So... Uh, so there's changes that are occurring um, within the first two weeks. And I think the uh, changes within the first two weeks um, were statistically significant for both placebo and saffron. Right. So so even if you put somebody on, tap, on a placebo, they'll feel better. As a general rule, they'll feel a little bit better after two weeks. Um, now, obviously, uh, they continue to get better. And what it seemed to do is about four weeks... They were, uh, they'd almost reached their peak. Um, and if they weren't better after four weeks, they probably weren't going to get any more better. That made, makes any sense yeah. grammatically. But uh, uh, so about four weeks they hit their peak, and, and maybe they got a little bit better in the second four weeks. But it, you know, the improvements occurred quite rapidly. And um, can can you just discuss a little bit about safety aspects of yeah. saffron, say with perhaps to long term treatment for those people that might need it? Well, with the with this study, saffron was very well tolerated. Um, in actual fact, uh, there was a tendency for less reported headaches in people on saffron compared to uh, those on placebo. So, so very well tolerated. Um, the, the issue with with a lot of saffron studies is that the longer studies uh, generally there's there's one study done with with Alzheimer's patients which went for a year but that was the only one that's been done for a, a longer period so the studies are generally about eight weeks long and they and well tolerated so safety you know it's safe to have a longer period we're not quite sure about I suspect it would be very very safe. Uh, but we just don't know. So, and the other thing that I don't know is, you know, we've given a dose of uh, 15 milligrams twice a day. Is what I would normally, well, I suppose, what would be useful to do is, if, if they weren't better after four weeks, if we had titrated it up, if we had increased the dose to 30 milligrams twice a day, could those non-responders start oh, responding? Now that's interesting. And, yeah, and that's another study. We're yeah, taking, you know, we're always giving 15 milligrams twice a day for all the studies, but we don't know whether that's the optimal dose. That, I mean, that's interesting. And I take your point, like we're dealing with saffron. And I think this is the thing where, you know, yeah, I get, you know, for the, for the, for the skeptics of, of natural medicine, I get that we'd love larger sample sizes. Um, I get it. Yep, sure. We need more research. Give us some money. Um, <laughs> give you some money. Exactly. Give Dr. Adrian Lepresti some money. Yeah, <laughs> I'm happy to have it. Yeah. My bank ready. <laughs> but, but I think the, the thing that people should be cognizant of is, especially in sensitive or vulnerable populations, safety is a massive aspect to consider, particularly with psychoactive substances. 
You know, so this is something that really should seriously be looked at. It really, really should. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. I, I think that um, for a lot of teenagers, or for youth and children, I mean, we're, we're looking at, you know, the research is, is on you know, your psychological therapies or your pharm- or for your pharmacological treatments. And the, the research isn't that good on the pharmacological treatments no, for depression right. and anxiety that's in youth. Right. Yeah, and so, particularly long-term, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so the next option is to look at some of your natural therapies uh, for youth and, and looking at things like saffron. And, and no, this is the first study ever being done on saffron for youth. Um, and no, and I'd say that'd be the case for a lot of um, natural therapies. Yeah. You know, there's a little bit there with omega-3s for depression, uh, but a lot of our common uh, herbs and uh, you know, ashwagandha, for example, there's no research on in youth, uh, curcumin, uh, there's no research in youth. Uh, St. John's Wort, there was a couple of really poorly designed studies with youth. So even St. John's Wort hasn't been investigated with yeah. youth. So it's just an area that's just not touched. When you see other research and you look at it, you know, with these negative effects and so they go, no effect, no effect, no effect, do you find that they're either ignorant or mischievous? Do you find that, like, how could you just give a herbal supplement without addressing your diet? You can't have a fast food diet with high trans fats, high sugar, high carb, along with a nutraceutical or a herbal intervention. Do you find that a lot of these studies are poorly done because they don't take heed of how important diet is? It's, you're right. It's crazy. I mean, the, the, the studies I mean, the studies that I'm doing, we're looking at one, we're giving a saffron supplement, uh, and they could be eating junk food all day, they, their sleep is poor, they're using drugs, and I'm giving them a saffron tablet. I mean, let's be, let's be serious here. Uh, and I would do my clients a disservice if they come into my office and they describe suffering from depression or anxiety, and I go, here, take this tablet and go away. Yeah. You know, we do, and unfortunately, that's the way studies are done. Um, and, and then if you then include multiple uh, treatments or multiple components in your in your study, it's criticised because they go, well, we don't know which one worked. That's like, well, who cares? So the problem is the science. The problem is what we yeah. want as a control. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, and it, you know, it's really that that integrative approach, which is I'm a, you know, a huge advocate of, of, is is looking at the multiple components and putting it all together and small changes in several areas. Each on their own may not be that powerful, but collectively extremely powerful. And, uh, and and that's where the research needs to be headed towards, incorporating an integrative approach. We don't care which bit of it was worked or which was more powerful or, in the end, the whole program works collectively. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I'm hoping to, to conduct a study looking at that integrative approach, uh, which is something I've developed is a program called Personalised Integrated Therapy, which incorporates all the different um, um, modalities or areas that can affect mood. And, it's, uh, and let's put it all together as a, as a program and see if that is uh, going to result in significant improvements compared to, say, cognitive behaviour therapy. Well, I, for one, and I'm sure all of our listeners can't wait for the results of that to come out, please give more money <laughs> to the government. <laughs> yeah. Adrian, like, you do really good work, and, and not just for research purposes, but for your patients. And this is who all of us, like, this is the whole point of what we do for the patients. Well done to you. I've got to say, take my hat off to you. You've done, Thank you. You've done well, son. Keep going. <laughs> you do awesome stuff, really. It's brilliant work. 
Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's something I'm, I'm passionate about, and uh, you know, I, I learn a lot from you know. I'm I'm not an very original person. I I just take uh, a look at what's been already done, and I try to put it together and uh, take the best bits of everybody else's good work and put it together. And uh, I learn a lot from other practitioners, and I learn a lot from my clients. You know, the, the amount of teaching that I've had from them uh, has been immense. So. You know, significant gratitude towards them and, and other practitioners. You know. Well, we have our gratitude to you and we are certainly learning from your um, your investigation. So thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. The Mind International Forum will be held in Sydney on the 23rd and 24th of March 2019. To find out more and to register for this premier event, please go to forum.mindd.org.